We're going to jump into a scripture in just a minute in John 17. But before I do that, let me tell you a story. <clears throat> About a week and a half ago, I started what I'm hoping to become a new tradition for me, a new habit for me, and that is uh, taking one day a month just to be alone with God. A day alone with God, D-A-W-G, dog. A day alone with God. I've been planning it for a while. I've been excited about doing it. And uh, I, I actually had to cancel it a couple times, but finally, it was last Thursday, not this past one, but the one before, that I got my day alone with God. I was so excited about it. Um, and I went to, uh, what's that called? What is it? Valley Green. Thank you, wife. My wife knows Valley Green better than me. I went to Valley Green. If anybody has been there, just it's beautiful in the middle of the city of Philadelphia, and yet you have this beautiful green space with this, this creek that's running through there, and and trees, and rocks, and birds, and ducks, and fish, and stuff. And so I'm going to this place just to enjoy nature and be with God. So uh, I made it my destination. I got there. I got out of my car. I looked for a big old stick. So as I was walking along the creek and walking along the craggly cliffs, sounded good, right? The craggly cliffs that I had my little stick. At one time, I just wanted to do like Moses, just throw the stick down and see if it would turn into a snake. But then I thought, I don't want a snake. So I, I didn't even throw the snake down. So I just walked with my walking stick. And um, I enjoyed my time. And, and I tried to get to a place where there was nobody else around, where, where I could really be alone and still. And I finally found this beautiful place after a long walk um, I found this beautiful place right down by the creek um, where I could sit and I had my, my, my books and everything and had my Bible and I pulled out my Bible. I was so, so excited. I'm finally here in my day alone. It's just me and the Father and Jesus and the Holy Ghost and we're going to have some time right here. And I pulled out my Bible and immediately my mind went to, oh my gosh, I'm behind on my scripture reading. I'm doing the read the Bible through in a year. I know all of you who have done that, you never get behind in it, but I got behind in it. So I said, I'm going to read a whole bunch of chapters of scripture here. And then I'm just looking for my pen. I'm looking for my pen. I can't find it anywhere. I don't have my pen. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, when I'm going to read a lot of scripture, when I'm going to read chapters of scripture, I have to have a pen. I have to have my pen. It's like my eyes won't work and I can't read it if I don't have a pen because I need to underline something. I need to write something in the margin. I need to say, ah, check that. Remember that. So I have to have my pen. And so here I am, 30 seconds into my day alone with God, with Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and I'm just frustrated. And I'm just getting mad. Where's my pen? I, I, I left it in the car. I left my pen in the car. And, and I kind of said, and I'm not going all the way back to the car to get it either. Um, and I was just getting frustrated. But I felt the Lord speak to me. I didn't hear something in the clouds. But, but just wooing me to himself and, 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 and saying to me, I didn't call you here to catch up on your scripture reading. I called you here to meet with me. Now, and, and, and he just 
wooed me into Psalm 46 just to meditate on the Word of God. Not to read a whole bunch of books and a whole bunch of chapters, but just to sit there and be with Him. Psalm 46 says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. God was inviting me just to be still and to stop and to be with him. We're going to look at some verses here in John uh, 17 today, but, but we want to come back to this experience of being still and being with God, even as we look at this inc these incredible verses in John 17. Let me read a few verses starting at the first verse, high priestly prayer of Jesus. He says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you've given us in your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself and you have not held back from us that which we need to know you. You woo us to be with you, to be silent before you, and to receive from you. So Lord, we ask that even now as we look at your word as we hear the word preached, that you would help us to still our own anxious hearts. We ask that just for a few minutes that our minds would uh, not wander and go here and there. But Lord, we pray that you would just capture us even now and do what you want to do in the hearts of your people. In this time we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're looking at particularly one verse uh, out of John 17 here. I'm going to really pay attention to the third verse. Um, this, this prayer that Jesus prays, uh, one commentator called it the Holy of Holies in the Gospel record. This is as Jesus has finished eating with his disciples the Last Supper, as he's finished washing their feet, as he's finished uh, letting them know that Judas was the one who was going to betray them, as he's finished talking to them about the fact that the world would be against them, but comforting them with the fact that the Holy Spirit of God will be with them, and letting them know even at the end of chapter 16 that although in the world you'll have tribulation, he says, but take heart, I've overcome the world. At this point, the next thing after this prayer is him walking and going to Gethsemane where he will pray and sweat like drops of blood. He's on his way to finish the work that he came to do to save us from our sin. But it means 
that he will be crushed, he will be bruised, he will be beaten. But even in the midst of this, he says, I've overcome the world. And he says in the verses we just read, all authority on earth has been given to me over all flesh. So he says later, no one can take my life. I give it up. So he does this. But after he has talked with his disciples, comforted his disciples, washed their feet, eaten with them, and, and, and given us the sacrament, after he's done all those things, he prays. He doesn't go away at this point to pray, but he's praying right in the presence of his disciples. And the scripture verse says here in, in, in verse 1 that Jesus lifted his eyes and he said, Father. That's how he prayed. He prayed out of his relationship with Father God. And so he begins this prayer and he's praying that God would give him, he says, the hour has come, it's time for you to glorify your son. Now, if you or I was to say, okay, it's time to give me glory, we'd probably say, yo, man, you need to step back. You need to step off. But Jesus, the only begotten of God, Jesus, God in the flesh, Jesus, the eternal God-man, when he says, the hour has come, glorify your son, he knows what that means, that he is about to purchase forever a people that will be his forever. And that he will great, gain great glory even through those, through those people. In verse 10 of this same chapter, Jesus says, all mine are yours and yours are mine. He said, I'm glorified in them. Isn't it amazing that you are part of the glory that Jesus Christ is praying about in these verses? He's praying about those whom God has given him and he says, I'm going to be glorified in them I'm glorified in the people that you're giving me. Wow. I'm part of that glory. The word glory, it, one of the meanings of it is to put on splendor. Glory is putting on splendor. Can you we, we talked about, and we've been going through Ephesians, the fact that we are to put on Christ, put off the old man, put on the new man, right? Created in Christ Jesus. We're to put on that new man. But there's a sense in which God is saying, I'm going to put you on. God's putting us on. We are like the diadems of his glory because he's purchased us from the world and we are his. So this is the invitation that God is giving us here. The, the title for today is Invitation to Eternal Life. Invitation to Eternal Life. This is a simple message, but I hope you'll get that it's not just simple, it's also profound as we look at the Word of God, I want to focus here on verse 3. I'll read it again. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, Jesus Christ whom you've sent. One point today, simple. Eternal life is found only in knowing God. Eternal life is found only in knowing God. It's not anywhere else. It's found only in knowing God. But what does that mean? What does it look like? Well, this verse will give us some insight to that. Three things that I want to draw from it to, to really establish that point that eternal life is found only in knowing God. The first point is this, and it comes from this part of the verse, verse that he says, that they know you, that they know you. Eternal life is that they know you. Point is this, 
intimate relationship is the substance of knowing God. Intimate relationship is the substance of knowing God. Substance is what something is, what it's made out of, right? The substance of knowing God is intimate relationship. He uses a word here for know. Gnosko is the word. And that's a, a word that's used throughout the, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament and in the New Testament to talk about when a man knows a woman. When a man knows a woman. I almost want to sing when a man loves a woman, but y'all don't want to hear me sing that right now. But when a man knows a woman, Adam knew his wife Eve. And what happened? And they had a son. They conceived. Yea, man. Adam knew his wife and he conceived. What does new mean? It does not mean. I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't know he knew her favorite color was yellow. And she conceived. No. It doesn't mean he knew her social security number. Because I'm almost positive that in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, they didn't have social security numbers. Almost positive of that. They didn't, there were only two people. My social security number is one, yours is two. How come you get to be one? Didn't have to have that argument yet. That's not what it meant. What it meant was simply this. Adam and Eve consummated their relationship they became one flesh the one flesh union and out of that union came a son so the word that's used here talks about that kind of knowing it's not the kind of knowing about all the facts and figures that we like to fill our heads with and impress people with but it's the kind of knowing that is involved in an intimate personal relationship that's what God calls us to Intimate relationship is the substance of knowing God. In John chapter 20, verse 31, John gives the reason for the writing of this gospel. And he's talked about all the signs that Jesus performed. It's never called miracles in John's gospel, but they're all called signs because they're not about the act themselves. A sign points to something other than itself. And so each of the signs that Jesus did pointed to the fact of who he was and what his mission was on earth that he came to accomplish. And so at the end of John's gospel, near the end, in chapter 20, verse 31, Jesus said, or, or the word says, these are written that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. He uses that word believe often. In this gospel, as a matter of fact, the verb for believe, the, the Greek word is pastuo. He uses that word 98 times in John's gospel as a verb. There's also a form of the word pistis, which is the noun form of believe, which John uses exactly zero times. He uses the verb 98 times. He uses the noun zero times. Why is that? Because for John, believing is something that you are doing. Believing is a verb. Believing is entering into a relationship by which you will change how you live and what you do. So that's the way that it's seen here. It's not just a noun. Oh, I believe this or I believe that. Does it change you? Does it determine how now shall I live? It should. When we 
come to know God, it changes everything about us. Changes, it changes the passions of our heart. Thomas Akempis, who was Christian way back in the day, 15th century. We talk about back in the day, we're talking about 1996 now. I'm talking about 1323 now. Thomas Akempis wrote a book called The Imitation of Christ. It's a Christian classic. It's been read for hundreds of years by many. But one of the things he says in there is this. He says, what avail is it to a man to reason about the high secret mysteries of the Trinity if he lack humility and so displeases the Holy Trinity? He says, I would rather feel compunction of heart for my sins than to merely know the meaning of compunction. By the way, the meaning of compunction is a feeling of uneasiness or anxiety of conscience caused by regret for doing wrong or causing pain. He says, I'd rather feel compunction of my heart for my sins than to know the definition of this fancy $50 word. Is that where God's drawing you into relationship? God wants us to come to a place of intimacy and relationship. One author lays out four C words for intimacy very quickly. The first one is communication. Communication. Can you have intimacy with someone without any communication with them? It would be kind of hard, right? It would be very difficult. God calls us to have communication uh, in our intimacy. So that is our prayer life. That is developing time that we spend with God, not only to talk to him, but to hear from him. You know, in this world, um, I saw a statistic somewhere, something like 70 to 80%, right, of our communication is nonverbal communication. 70 to 80%. So um, let me just give you an example. Yesterday, there is a rumor that I was found somewhere playing spades. I will neither confirm nor deny that rumor. But, but when you play spades, like the cardinal rule of spades is that you cannot talk across the table. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Like you can't be given little, little signs. Like, you know, if you got a handful of diamonds, you know, if I'm playing with my wife, she could be looking at a ring like, hmm? I got you, baby, right here, right here, right here in my heart. You can't do that when you play spades. So it's my wife and I were playing spades, and we're pretty good with the nonverbals, but we, if we had been playing, we may have been playing with someone uh, a, a father and a son. Fa See, my wife have known and I have known each other for like years, but I didn't know her at the beginning. She didn't know me at the beginning. Like a father and a son, they know each other from the beginning. Like the, the son came from the father, right? I mean, there's Bible for that. Come on now. But if we had been playing and if we were playing against a father and a son, and, and I'm not going to mention names because I know Rob wouldn't want me to mention names. But um, if we had been playing, 
then like the son and the father, they just, the, the son learned to play from the father. Am I right about it? Okay. So they just know, they have a communication level that's just different, right? So uh, anyway, uh, if, if, if they had won, it would, you know, it'd be for all kinds of reasons. Plus we got really bad cards. But um, communication is part of emotional intimacy. We're, we're communicating. How are you communicating with God? How deep is that intimacy? Caring is the second C word for intimacy. Caring. I, I genuinely care for the other. I care what they think. Commitment. Commitment is critical to intimacy. We find out about commitment when life gets difficult. Right? We find out where commitment is when life is hard. How committed am I really to the old saying, when the going gets rough, the rough get going. Now, that can mean a lot of things. It can mean when the going gets rough, I'm out of here. And unfortunately, in this world, a lot of commitment looks like that. But God has another kind of commitment where he calls us to work through, to walk through all of the difficult things in life and honor him in that. And the last C word there is common value. So emotional intimacy or intimacy looks like having common values. We value the same thing. I was watching a movie uh, the other day. And it was, I noticed that it was produced by a, a Christian, um, a prominent Christian, and it had Christians involved in it. And, and there was a lot of good stuff in it and a lot of good ideas and thoughts. But there was one thing I really struggled with in watching this movie. And that was, it was about a couple that had met, and it was six months later, and they were about to get married. They were going to get married six months after they met. And throughout the whole movie, they made this huge deal about the fact, and this is a good thing, that the couple maintained sexual purity for those six months. They didn't have relationship. That was good. Praise the Lord. That's wonderful. But what got me was they acted like, even as believers, like that was a thing that was like so far beyond what you could ever expect or imagine from anyone. People kept asking them, how could you even possibly do this? Like it was a wild and crazy idea that came somewhere from outer space. How is this even possible that you would maintain purity for six months? It's impossible. And look, everybody in this room knows purity is no joke. Whether you're married or single or somewhere in between, whatever that means, purity can be difficult, man. And it's a fight every day. But it's, it's, if we value God, if we know him and we desire to walk with him, that's, that's a place where we want to honor him. We have common values when, when we're intimate. As a matter of fact, sometimes when people uh, are together for a long time, they, you ever seen a couple... They start to look alike. I mean, it's like, dang. They just, look, stand up, wife. Come on. Please stand up. I know it's Mother's Day. Don't be mad at me. Stand up. People say that about me and Harriet all the time. And I have to tell them I'm the tall white guy with a funny looking nose. But when, 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 you, when you're intimate, you begin to look alike. In, in many ways, you think alike. You have common values. God calls us in our relationship with him to be molded and shaped into the image of Jesus Christ. Are you looking more like him? 
Is that the trajectory of your life? Paul says in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. Yes, I want that mighty power. But he also says, and I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death. Paul was committed to being with Jesus. I want to read for you something from this book. I'll talk about this book in a little while. End. But this is a prayer, kind of a statement as well, of someone who is learning the importance of intimacy with God. It says this, I ask God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn to obey. I asked him for health that I might do great things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked him for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked him for power when I was young that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need for God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all people most richly blessed. I want to know him. I want to know him. Intimate relationship is the substance of knowing God. Not only that, as we go on in this verse, Secondly, exclusive relationship is the essence of knowing God. Look, look what it says. Again, this is eternal life that they know you. Who? The only true God. This is eternal life that they know you. The only true God. God calls us into intimate relationship, but also exclusive relationship. It's him and him alone. He is the only true God. There's a whole lot of false gods. When God called Israel uh, and he called Abraham and, and he worked into the, in the life of this people Israel, he continued to let them know that I am God. He revealed his name to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. All the peoples around them, all the cultures around them had many different gods. They had a God for this and a God for that. A God for the rainy day, a God for the sunny day. A God uh, for fertility and a God for the harvest. A God for this and a God for that. Many gods. But God calls out a specific people and he says, I am the one true God. There's none like me. One commentator looking at these verses says, this part of this verse says what it really means is it pertains to God being real and not imaginary. And he translates it this way, that they may know you, the only one who really is God. The one true, real, living, eternal, awesome God. You want to know this guy. God calls us into this exclusive relationship. If you were a little boy or a little girl in Israel, 
even an infant, probably even in mama's tummy still, what you would hear over and over and over again in any good Jewish household was Deuteronomy 6.4. We call it the Shema. And the way it was said was this. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. What in the world is he saying? Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. That distinguished a people from every other people on the face of the earth. Does it distinguish you? Does it distinguish me? Could someone look at my living, at your living, and say, this person is committed to one true God. Their money is not their God. Their job is not their God. Their grades are not their God. Their status is not their God. Their relationships are not their God. They are committed to the one true and living God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Some relationships are just meant to be exclusive. God says in Exodus 34, 14, you must worship no other gods for the Lord whose very name is jealous is a God who's jealous about his relationship with you. God, whose very name is jealous. Now, some of us know we got all kind of petty jealousies, right? We can get jealous about all kind of stuff. Last year, I was on my second honeymoon with my wife. We celebrated our 25th anniversary. We went to Hawaii. It was wonderful. The water was slightly different than the Schuylkill and beautiful. But what was really beautiful about it was just being with the one I love. 6,000 miles away from everybody else <laughs> that knew us. One night, we went to this luau. It wasn't some wild, crazy luau, but it, it, was, it was a luau. And so we're eating the food and stuff, and this, this nice couple sitting next to us was real friendly, especially the dude, probably around, around my age, just real friendly. They had been married. They were celebrating 10 years. We were celebrating 25. We started talking. But he just got, he started to get real friendly. Am I right or wrong, wife? I'm right. He started to get like real friendly and especially started talking to my wife a lot. Not just a little. Like, wow. Man, I don't like this. Then the dude who's doing the luau says, um, Any, anyone here who's having an anniversary? We raise our hands. Our, our friends, I use the term loosely, raise their hands. And they say, come on up on the stage and, and dance. So we're dancing, and I'm enjoying dancing with my wife because I got skills like that. And, and we're, I'm moving her around the floor and busting up her toes and stuff. But our new friend comes over and nudges me. And he says, you mind if I cut in? I check myself for weapons. I was clean. That was good, because if I had a weapon, ah, I might not be here right now. I said, yes, 
I'm like, no, you're not cutting in. Are you crazy? Not cutting in? Goodness gracious. Some relationships are exclusive. You can't, you can't even dance with this girl. She's mines. I put an S on the end of that word. She's mines. Yes. See, that's, God is a jealous God. He wants all of you. He wants relationship with you. He, he wants intimacy with you. When we understand that in, in, in Matthew 13, parables of the kingdom, one, one verse, verse 44, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. He found a treasure that was worth more than anything else he had, that whatever else he could ever find on this world, and he understood the worth of this treasure so much that he hid it, he went back, he sold everything he had. I want this little piece of land. Why that piece of land? There's something there that I value above all else. Does that describe your walk with God? Really? Really? When you look how you live when I look at how I live I've struggled with this because a lot of times if I had to be honest about the answer to that question I would say yeah I feel that I believe that but if I look at how I live at the pace of my life which doesn't slow down and stop to be with God because I have a list of things to do because even when I'm having my day alone with God it's about working on something getting my scripture reading done no God says be with me so that's the call, exclusive relationship. I, I, was, I read this article. Um, there's something called open marriage. I hope none of you have one. Um, where couples decide that they can have other relationships and go all the way there in those other relationships. They actually have a name for themselves. And I looked up this word. I never heard it before but they call themselves polyamorists. Poly, many, amorous, love, right? So I've just got too much love for one person. Hmm. But what kind of love do you have for that one person, right? Sometimes we're polyamorous with God. We're in love with so many other things. Our, our hearts, our minds, our lives are committed to so many other things. And God says, I want you exclusively. I want you. I want you alone. We need to be careful as believers because our relationship with God sometimes can get very familiar in a way where the old saying says, familiarity breeds contempt, where it's almost like it's just, okay, that's just God. That's, no, he's God. He's the only true and living God. Don't let him become common. Be careful you don't slip into giving anything or anyone else the unique place in your life that God has reserved exclusively for himself. When anything, when anyone says, can I cut in? You got a quick elbow, a knee. If you got a weapon, get your weapon. You got to let them know, no. But life tends to eat us up. Our culture is fast. There's so much to do. 
We've got to find a way to break through to this. One last point. That is, not only is relationship, intimate relationship, the substance of knowing God, an exclusive relationship, the essence of knowing him, but look at the last part of this verse, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Christ-centered relationship is the manner of knowing God. Christ-centered relationship. So we're only going to know this one true and almighty God through one person, and that is Jesus Christ. If you don't know Christ, you don't know the one true and living God. You cannot have intimacy with God apart from his son, Jesus Christ. One of his disciples in John 14 asked him as, Je as Jesus was talking about the way that he was about to go and he was beginning to prophesy about what was going to shortly happen with his crucifixion. And he said, to them, he said, show us the way, Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Then the next disciple, Philip, says to him, Lord, show us the Father. And it's enough for us. Jesus says to Philip, how long have I been with you? And you still don't know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. See, the relationship and the intimacy that God draws us into, eternal life is through Jesus Christ. It's through knowing him and knowing him alone. In John 10, 30, he says, I and the Father are we come to know God through knowing the Son, who is also God in the flesh, even Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God's calling us into this type of intimacy. Eternal life is found only in knowing God. Eternal life isn't about how long you get to live. Because the reality is, in one sense, everybody gets to live eternally somewhere in the presence of God or banished from his presence. One description of that is the lake of fire. There's other biblical descriptions. Whatever description you have, it can't be called eternal life. Eternal life is fullness of life in the presence of God, drinking in his presence. Some years ago, my wife and I, we went through a very difficult period. Actually, when we came out of a church that we were involved in, it was a very difficult period in life that we went through. And at that time, we discovered uh, some books and some materials that were very helpful to us. And we're going to talk about that right now. But what, what I found was that in, in, in going through a difficult place with God, it, it was almost like I didn't have what it took to really stop, center on Christ, be with God, and drink in enough to sustain me. Have you ever felt that way? I know I saw Sister Renata here somewhere. Where's Renata? She's here somewhere right there. She did the Broad Street Run last week. Amen, sister. It's hard for me to do the Broad Street Drive, but 
I'm winded by the time I get to, you know, South Philly. But she did the Broad Street Run. Now, you ever see like marathoners or long distance runners? They're running and there's a table there, right? With, with all, with the water or the Gatorade or whatever it is. And they're running and they grab the cup. When they grab it, half of it's already gone. And they're still running. They miss their mouth with 90% of it. They get seven drops of water, maybe. That's the way some of us drink in God. We're running and we're running and we're running and we're grabbing the cup, but we're spilling it all over the place. And even when we bring it to our mouth, we miss. Jesus said, I am the water, I'm the living water. Isn't it something that the one who is himself the living water was about to cry out on the cross? I'm thirsty. He knows your thirst, He knows my thirst. I don't know about you, sometimes when I hear a message like this, I get frustrated. The preacher's just talking about this intimacy, this relationship with God. I've heard these messages, I've heard this kind of message time after time, but you don't understand how busy, how crazy my life is. I just don't seem to be able to muster up enough self-discipline, enough time to really get this thing right. It's just frustrating. Maybe some of you feel frustrated with this message that would actually be a good thing. I know I am in some ways. But God is calling us to come to a place as a believing community here at Epiphany where we're learning to slow down, to be more contemplative, and to take time with God. And one of the ways that we're going to do that this summer, we're going to have a preaching series on it. We're going to in all of our life groups, read through this book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. It's changed, and it is changing my life, my wife's life. I know that Pastor Mason and his family has been through it. Some of the other leaders have been through it. I've been through it like three times. Um, and about six weeks ago or so, my wife actually and I went on a retreat or on a seminar to New York. Uh, where the author is, and his wife, and they were doing a seminar on it. And just hearing it again just really struck a chord that we need to change the way we're living. We are caught up. We are running past the water table, and we are missing our mouths with the water. God, help me to sit down and to go to the well of salvation and drink in deeply that which you're giving me. God wants to do that. Will you stop? Will you slow down? The, the answer to that question for most of us is, I want to, but I have no idea how. We're going to do this in life groups over the summer. So this book is the textbook for it. Also, the little prayer I read for you earlier. This is a book of, called Daily Office, which has two times a day quiet times, times to spend with God, and a way to do that. And there's also a workbook uh, that goes along with the book and goes along with the small groups. So what we'd ask you to do today, if you, have, if you can, when you leave the building, there will be people down there, and you can just write your name and say, I need this book, this is $15, or I need these two books, this is $10. You don't have to give any money today. 
We're just trying to get an idea of how many we need to order for the church. And then once we have an idea of that, we're going to order them. They'll be in the bookstore, and you'll be able to pick them up from the bookstore. I just want to say to you, this would be the best $25 investment you can make. We need as a community to learn how to slow down. Unfortunately, evangelical Christianity is very much like the rest of our culture and world. We run and run and run, and we do for God, and we do for God, and we do for God. But God has called us to be human beings, not human doings. And what we do for God needs to come out of our being with God. And if you will embrace this material, this time, if you'll put the time in, together as a community, I believe that we'll never, ever be the same again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. You are great and mighty. We thank you, Lord, that you invite us to be with you, to know you, to walk with you. As Calvin said, to think your thoughts after you. We begin to think like God in terms of our passion and our desire is for the things that you're passionate about, that you care about. And those things that so consume us begin to mean less Less. Father, I pray that you would draw us, that you would woo us into that quiet place where we will hear your voice, where we will be equipped in every way to love you, to know you, and then to serve you. So, Lord, we thank you for this time. Watch over. And bless the remainder of our time together today in Jesus' name.